told Brother Hilton, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I, I was telling him yesterday, I said, I'm already at nine pages of notes. He said, so you're starting a new series? I said, um, I wasn't planning on this being a series. Uh, as most of you know, we head out for Africa tomorrow for our final trip of this year, our fourth and final trip of this year. We do plan on having a list for prayer and fasting out tonight for you to sign up um, so you can join with us in your efforts in helping us uh, doing what we are doing and um, really looking forward to God doing some great, great things on this trip. But because of that, I'm going to be gone uh, next Sunday, be in Africa, and then you know the condition I'm in when I get home. And uh, it is exhausting, to say the least, uh, to make that trip. Um, but uh, it, it would mean if I don't finish this lesson today that it's going to be a couple weeks before I can get back to it, and I really don't want to do that. So I'm going to try today, try today, not to keep you too long, and yet I really want to finish this lesson. It is, it's an important lesson. This lesson today... Um, some, I don't even know when, maybe a year ago, something like that, we, I felt the need in our conferences in Africa to, to insert another lesson that we had not taught uh, up to that point. And uh, it was because uh, I was making reference during a lot of my teaching there to certain principles that I soon realized they were not aware of, they, they were not familiar with. And, and so I felt like it would be of real benefit if we inserted a lesson on this subject. And uh, in fact, Brother Josh was with me, I think, the first time we did this. And, and uh, I asked him to uh, put together a lesson on this subject. And from that time, I've had others teaching it. I've never taught on this subject myself, uh, but this coming conference, um, just the way things have fallen, the men that are going with me, I felt it was important that I do this particular lesson. And so in preparation, in preparing this lesson for the conference coming up this week in Africa, I really felt that it would be of benefit to this church if I took some time, because in, in the years that I've been here, uh, though I have no doubt shared these things with you, I've never just taught a direct lesson on this subject. And, um, and yet it is vitally important. It's extremely important. And I'm going to tell you that the closer we get to the end, the more important lessons like this become. Because there are deceiving spirits that are at work in this age. And if you'll remember, Jesus said that unless the days are shortened, the very elect could be deceived. If it's possible, he said even the elect could be deceived. And so, so I'm telling you that every one of us has the potential to be deceived. That potential is there. And the only thing that's going to help us avoid deception. 
is to learn the truth and to know how to skillfully handle the word of truth. Listen, it's not enough to just sit on a pew and listen to a preacher preach. Now that's important. And and the Bible says that's what saves us. God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But I'm telling you that in and of itself is not enough. We've got to be able to pick this book up. And, and interpret it and rightly divide it and come to the proper conclusions because there are so many, so many seducing spirits at work today and false prophets. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just telling you what Jesus said would happen. And if we believe the words of Jesus, then there are false prophets out there today. And um, we, we got to know how to, how to deal with it. And so I'm going to try to give you some things today, some principles, some things that will help you in your personal development and help to ground you more fully in the truth. Praise God. So let's turn uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read two verses of Scripture as our text today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, familiar, um, especially the latter verse, is familiar to most of us. Um. But I want to back up and catch the verse before it as well, um, just to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing to his son in the gospel, writing to a minister that he has raised up and is preparing Uh, is trying to pour himself into um, and uh, is trying to help him in his ministerial work. But I believe that the principle here goes beyond just the ministry. And I think think it is something that every one of us need to pay attention to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. That they strive not about words to no profit. In other words, don't waste your time with things that don't benefit us. It's easy to get sidetracked and get into things that are of no real importance. He said, don't do that. He said, what they do, these words have no profit, but what they do is they subvert the hearers. And so then he says to Timothy in verse 15, study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, can I just tell you this morning, before, before you're seated, let me just, 
you know, I've, I've often said words mean things. Words mean things. And, and when, when there are things that are written in this book, I don't think anything in the Bible is redundant or unnecessary. I think even to, well, in fact, Jesus is the one who said that not even a jot or a tittle. That is the breathing marks, the punctuation marks of what God has said is going to pass away. So even the minute things God cares about that are written in this book. And I want you to notice that he tells Timothy that if you want to be approved to God, uh, uh, unto God, if you want to be a workman that has no shame, then you've got to learn to rightly divide. Everyone say rightly divide. Now, if Paul stressed rightly dividing the word, then it should be obvious to us that it's possible to wrongly divide it. That means we can take this book and divide it in such a way that we come up with wrong answers. So Paul said, Timothy, be careful, study. Do some work, son. Apply yourself to this so that when you divide this book, you do it right. And so that's what we're going to talk about for a while today is rightly dividing the word. Amen. Rightly dividing the word. Amen. Praise God. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to talk to us today. Can we do that? I believe he can speak to us in the midst of a lesson like this. Let's everybody talk to the Lord right now. Jesus' name. Could we praise him together right now, everyone, before you're seated? Just give God a few moments of praise. Could we do that? Let's give him some praise. He's worthy of it. He deserves it. He's been good to every one of us. Hallelujah. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. The Apostle Paul instructed Timothy to aim for a particular goal in his life. And that was that Timothy should strive to be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, another translation says it this way, do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of. Did you get that? Do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of. Amen. This same translation says that this is accomplished where the King James is rightly dividing the word of truth. 
This is the International Standard Version. It says, it says handling the word of truth with precision. I like that. Handle it with precision. Don't be sloppy about it. Don't be careless about it. Don't do it haphazardly. Praise God. I can remember years ago, working my way through college, working in a machine shop, and, and some of those machines we, we actually produced, we manufactured parts for oil wells. And uh, some of those machines, you know, you set that machine uh, some of you that have ever worked in a machine shop know what I'm talking about, but you set the controls on that machine for a certain tolerance. Uh, you know, it has to be within a certain realm. And, and some of those parts had just such a minute tolerance that it was almost zero. You couldn't waver even, even a fraction of a millimeter. Just, it, it had to be on it. That's precision. And that's what we are instructed to do when we handle this book. We don't just pick it up and apply it any way we want to apply it. But there's got to be precision in what we do. There's got to be a method to how we handle it. We've got to have some tools and some helps where we can take this book and allow it to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish in our lives. Amen. Now, if we're going to handle the word with precision, there are two things that we've got to strive for. Let's, let's read again verse 15. Read it for me again. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All right, now, the first thing, the first thing, If we're going to handle the word with precision, the first thing that ought to jump out at us is this word, study. I've told this church before, but on one of my trips to Africa at the end of the conference, uh, after I'd spent many hours teaching, um, somebody sent up a a request. And uh, one of the pastors there in that conference uh, put on his request, he said, I want you to pray for me that I will be able to explain the scriptures the way you do. And um, so when they handed me that request and asked if I wanted to respond, I, 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 I tried to be as kind as I could. And, and I, I didn't know who submitted it. They don't put a name on it. Uh, I assumed that if I'd have called for him, he would have come up. But, but as it stood, nobody really knew who asked the question. And so my response was, you know, I, I'm honored I'm humbled that you see that quality in me. I appreciate it. But I want you to know I'm not going to pray that prayer. And the reason I'm not going to pray that prayer is because I can't transmit to you a knowledge of the scripture by praying for you. There is no three minute or five minute or two-hour prayer that would allow me to take what I've learned and put it in your head. There's only one way for you to get the knowledge that I have. You're going to have to study. 
I didn't arrive at this overnight. It's something I started applying myself to as a young man. And I've dedicated my life to the pursuit of this. And so if you want to understand it and be able to explain it, you're going to have to put in 40 years of study. The way that I have. God's no respecter of persons. He'll give you, in fact, he'll give you greater knowledge. You, you know, you're, you're probably not as limited in your abilities as I am. You, you probably don't have the, the, um, the small mental capacity that I possess. Uh, you, you could go far beyond what I've done, but it's not going to happen because I pray for you. It's going to happen because you do what Paul told Timothy to do. You study. See, see, listen, this is a problem worldwide. We live in an age where everybody wants everything to be instant. We don't want to wait. We don't want to work for things. We want things handed to us. We want what we want and we want it now. That's right. That's sadly not just this generation, but even a generation or two prior to this one. We've, we've just learned to make things fast and quick and simple, but there are some things in life that you cannot hurry. Some things in life are still just going to take time, patience, and hard work. This is one of them. You've got to study. Jesus commanded uh, something of his hearers in John chapter 5, verse 39. Read this for us. Search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. Uh Uh-huh. And they are they They are they which testify of me. Now listen to what he said. He said, I want you to search. Again, we want things so quick. We want to be able to open our Bible, pull out one verse, and have the answer we need. Jesus said, search the scriptures. Search them. Get down that book and read it. Get to know it. Pursue truth. Search the scriptures. The Greek word translated search literally means to inquire or to investigate. Now look, every one of us know if we were, if we were the subject of an investigation and there's some charge brought against us, we don't want them coming in and doing a, a 10 second investigation. And if you're innocent, you want to be cleared of the charges. Right? You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to be embarrassed about, then I want them. I want them to comb through everything with a fine-tooth comb. I, I want them to take their time so when they get through and say this man is innocent, everyone knows. And that's what the word search really means. It means to do a thorough investigation. Investigate the scriptures. 
Examine. In fact, the, the, this saying, the International Standard Version says, examine the scriptures carefully. We've got to be careful in how we do it. Paul taught, uh, told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2 and 24. And I've, I've, got to, I've got to pick up the pace. So let me, let me try here very quickly. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, uh-huh. but be gentle unto gentle. all men. Apt to Apt. teach. To teach. And, and in fact, it's, it's interesting um, that in both places where the Apostle Paul listed the qualifications for a bishop, or that word really just means overseer. It is another word for a pastor, really. Um, but, but when he listed those qualifications both times, he made a very clear statement. He said that you must be apt to teach. He never said you've got to be a good preacher even though it's preaching that saves us. But he said, I'll tell you what you do have to do. You've got to be apt to teach. The Amplified Bible uh, translates this phrase as a skilled and suitable teacher. We've all had some teachers, no doubt, that um, weren't as skilled or as suitable as we would like. I had a teacher in college that Unfortunately, he didn't really want to study, and it was obvious. And so he knew how to come into class and bring up some subject where there was controversy, get the whole class to debating one another, arguing with one another. He would stand back, lean against the wall, and let us just fight it out. And that was our class. And we didn't learn anything except how to argue. That's not even what the class was. This wasn't debate class. I think it was supposed to be church history. Um, Paul said you need to be a skilled and a suitable teacher. And this can only be accomplished through study. Now let me tell you, simply studying is not enough. We've got to make sure we study Properly. There are right ways and wrong ways to study. 2 Timothy 2, let's read our text again, verses 14 and 15. These things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Now, now one, one commentator said that this phrase, strive not about words to no profit, that, that he said the apostle was speaking of that kind of discourse which is not founded in good sense. There's not even any logic to what's being said. And I've, I've heard some Bible interpretations where I've just walked away saying that doesn't even make sense. I'm sorry, but it doesn't make sense. And uh, I think anything that God spoke should Makes sense. So then, then he says, verse 15, study to show, study thyself, to show thyself approved unto God. God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly, rightly dividing, the word, dividing the word of truth. So, so the first thing that we've got to do if we're going to be workmen that, that are not ashamed, first of all, we've got to study. But, but there's a second qualifier here, and that is we must rightly divide the word of truth. So we've got to study properly. 
got to avoid wrongly dividing it, as I said a while ago, and learn how to rightly divide the scripture. Because I'm telling you that the Bible can be twisted to mean just about anything we want it to mean. If we don't have certain rules that govern Bible interpretation, then we can twist the scriptures and come up with any kind of philosophy or teaching. In fact, 2 Peter 3.16, Peter talked about people doing this very thing. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these He's things. talking about Paul. In which are some things hard to be understood. He said Paul wrote some things hard to be understood. Which they that are. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood. All right. But then what did he say? What did Peter say? Which they that that are are unlearned and unstable unstable rest. Rest. As they do also also the other scriptures. scriptures Unto their their own destruction. This word rest literally means to torture. They torture the scriptures. The the extension, the, the idea, the concept behind the use of this particular word is that they twist it so much that they totally pervert it. You know, it's interesting to me that, that James talked about looking into the word, uh, that it's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He's talking about a mirror. James likens the scripture to a mirror. Now, I'm going to tell you, I look in the mirror a lot of times and I don't like what I see. But it's not the mirror's fault. Like it or not, the mirror's telling me the truth. Of course, I got a great revelation just a day or two ago. You know, when, when we get talking about age, and I, I invariably talk about being an old man, and, you know, it, it's, I'm not that far away from turning 60, and my wife will just shake her head and say, it's just a number, it's just a number, it's just a number. So the other day, I got a revelation. I said, okay, so 60 is just a number. All right. So the next time I step on the scale, it's just a number. Just a number. She didn't like that too well. But but listen, the mirror tells me the truth, whether I like it or not. It tells me that some of my hair is turning gray. It tells me that a lot of it's turning loose. Right? It tells me a lot of things that I might not like, but it tells the truth. Unless... Somebody does something to that mirror. You ever been in a fun house where a little short, stubby guy like me can walk up to a mirror and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm a string bean. You know, I'm eight feet tall and, and only three inches in circumference. And I'm looking in a mirror and that's what it shows me to be. And then you take somebody else that's, that's you know, six foot four and, 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 and they walk in and all of a sudden they're short and wide and they're looking at a mirror. But do you know how those mirrors are made to show that? They've got to be twisted. The mirror has to be distorted. 
to give a distorted image. So you can say, I'm looking in the mirror. Look at me. I'm tall and skinny. Yeah, but that mirror's been distorted. And, and that's what Peter said people do, not just to Paul's writings, but he said they do it to the other scriptures too, but they do it to their own destruction. They look into that mirror and find what they want to see. If they don't like what they see, they learn how to twist it to give them the image they desire. Hallelujah. Listen, I, I don't have time to go into this. I've, I've, I've expressed this before, but, but it is possible for us to torture the scriptures, to pervert the scriptures. If we don't follow proper methods of Bible interpretation. The example I like to use is you can take Matthew 27, 5. We're not going to read these verses, but, but you can take Matthew 27, 5, which speaks of Judas and says he went out and hanged himself. All right, everybody believes that's in the Bible. It's there, Matthew 27 and verse 5, Judas went out and hanged himself. Now com co combine that with Jesus' command in Luke 10, 37, Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. And then let's add to that John 13, 37, where Jesus said, that thou doest, do quickly. And if we take those three verses and we put them together, then the answer is we ought to all rush out of here and commit suicide. But I'm telling you, those verses don't go together. They don't belong together. There's no connection between the three. But that's exactly what some people do in their Bible doctrines. They take bits and pieces and put them together in order to try to prove themselves right. So we've got to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Amen? We've got to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, very quickly, very quickly, one of the most basic proper divisions of the Bible is, of course, that we separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's that's basic. Some people forget about that. Um, it's not that one is not important. But we do have to understand the distinction between the two. They don't contradict one another. Contrary to popular belief, God didn't change from one testament to the other. Because one of the last prophets, God spoke through him. Prophet Malachi and said, I am the Lord. I change not. So he wasn't about to change just because the New Testament was coming. God didn't change. The Old and New Testaments do not contradict each other. But we do need to understand the distinctions. I don't have time to go into all of that today. I'm, there, there's some other things that I feel like are far more important, but... But um, I just want to lay this out very quickly for you so you know that when you're reading the Bible, you need, to, you need to, to find out, is this Old Testament? Is this New Testament? And then what's the significance of where it appears? Um, then when we get to the New Testament itself, we can, we can take the New Testament and, and we can come up with four uh, divisions 
within the New Testament. We're rightly dividing the word here. Four divisions with the New Testament. First of all is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four books, they all begin somewhere around the birth of Jesus, end somewhere around his death, burial, and resurrection. We could say these books are the biographies of Jesus Christ. In fact, we really, I believe I could prove scripturally, it's more than just a biography, it's an autobiography. Because Matthew is not the real author of Matthew. Matthew penned it, but the Lord spoke it. But regardless, these tell the life story of Jesus Christ. And, and so we have the Gospels. That's the first division. And, and then we have the book of Acts. It is a book of history. It tells of the acts or the actions of the apostles, those to whom Jesus committed his life's work. Those men that were commissioned to carry on the work he came to begin. And in that book, we find the message they preached, the things they did. We find where they're telling sinners how to be saved. That's in this book of history, the book of Acts. And then the third is the epistles. Now, epistles is not, uh, that does not mean the apostle's wife. Um, epistle is an old English letter, an uh, old English word that means Letter. And, and that's what they are. They are letters that were written to churches or to individuals who are already saved. Now look, this stuff is important. If you're going to understand and interpret the Bible properly, you've got to understand this. You, you've got to understand that whether it's Romans or it's Corinthians or it's Jude, these letters are written to people that are already saved. They're not written to sinners. That doesn't mean sinners can't read them. But that was not the, the target audience. They're written to people or to churches already saved. All right? Now, some people put a, another division in there, um, and, and, and that is the book of Revelation. Some take that and put it under epistles. The book of Revelation does open with letters in it. It doesn't matter to me, but... But the book of Revelation, of course, is a book of prophecy, of things that are yet to be fulfilled. All right? Uh, and so, so those are the basic divisions of the New Testament, and we need to understand it. And, and again, even knowing that, that the book of Revelation is by and large a book of things yet to be fulfilled, we don't go in there and start pulling verses out and trying to make it apply to some event in history. These, these are basic things, but they're things that we need to understand. Now, let me, again, and I'm trying to do this quickly. There are a number of tools that will help you in rightly dividing the scripture. And, and I'm going to go through these. I know it's going to be hard if you're trying to take notes to get them all written down. Best thing you can do is get a copy of the, uh, the recording, and we provide that to you free of charge. Or you can go back to the website, listen to it, download it, uh, listen to it. Uh, make notes then because you can always stop the recording and, and write down what you want to write. But let me just, because I'm not going to focus on these today, but I want to I just go through eight tools that will help you as you try to interpret the scripture. All right? Now, for me, because I'm so simple-minded, I, like um, I, I like to use any form of mnemonic, any form of memory device that will help things 
stick in, in what is becoming uh, less and less dependable in my memory. Uh, if, if I can find some tool that will help me make it stick, then I want to use it. Um, of course, you know, sometimes I'm like the, the elderly man. He and his wife are walking down the street, and they see some elderly friends of theirs, and, and uh, they, they stop them, and the friends looked at him and said, Oh, said, said, you know, last time we met, you were telling me that you were going to a doctor that was going to help you with your memory loss. And he said, Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, he said, we have, we've been going faithfully. He said, well, is it working? He said, oh, man, it's working great. He said, he's, you know, he's teaching me to associate things with other things that I can remember easily, and, and that process of association really helps. And he said, oh, man, he said, I'm, I'm starting to have problems. He said, I need to know uh, who that doctor is. I'd like to go see him. He said, what's the doctor's name? And the man stood there for a minute, and he said, um, now, he said, what, what is that flower that's it's it's red. The petals are red, and 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 it's got thorns on the stem. And it and and his friend said, "A rose." He said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Turned to his wife and said, "Hey, Rose, what's that doctor's name?" That's um, it's kind of the way it is for me sometimes with with mnemonic devices. All right, they don't always help as well as I'd like. But and this may not do you any good. But but these eight things, if I kind of put them as somebody's name. Um, the individual that's going to help me interpret the Bible, his name is Dutch L. Pewey. All right, Dutch L. Pewey. That's D-U-C-H-L-P-U-I. Dutch L. Pewey. Now, each of those letters obviously stands for something. D is definition. You got to know what the word means. Usage. How is a, a particular word used in the passage in question? Then you've got context, that is the setting of the scripture itself, the verses that come before it, the verses that come after it. Those things are important. And then you've got H is historical background. Sometimes you have to understand the history of the people or the setting, the, the, the intended audience. Those things will help you know why certain things were said. All right, history. Then you've got logic, just make sense of it. Just got to make sense. Use some logic. Then you've got precedence. Whether or not this is the first mention of the subject in the Bible. Precedence. And we're going to come back to that. But precedence, if it's the first mention, then, then we got to pay special attention. And we'll talk about that. But um, that's important. Then you've got unity. That is, how does it fit into the overall picture of the Bible? You take a verse and you think you know what it means, but it is just contrary to everything else the Bible teaches, then that verse is not wrong, but your interpretation of the verse is wrong. Because there is a unity to the scripture. From Genesis through Revelation, there's a unity. There is a constant singular focus. Are you with me? And so as we interpret scripture, we've got to look to the unity uh, of that interpretation. And then the last one is inference. What is being implied by the verse? What can you infer from this verse? Is there some implication that is being made? All right, now again, th those things, I'm not going to focus on them today. I don't have time to. But those are just some tools that will really help you 
as you try to translate or interpret, not translate, but interpret the scripture. But I want to focus, rather than focusing on these eight tools, I want to focus on four basic principles. All right? Four basic principles of Bible interpretation. And, and these principles become, become so vital to us if we're going to rightly divide the scripture. Let me give them to you very quickly and then I'm going to take the rest of the time to, to um, deal with what they mean. So just very quickly, let me list these four principles for you. First of all, principle number one, the scripture is of no private interpretation. It's of no private interpretation. Again, I'll explain what these mean in a moment. Number two, always let scripture interpret scripture. Always let scripture interpret scripture. Number three, consider the law of first mention. Consider the law of first mention. And number four, always require more than one witness. Always require more than one witness, all right? So those are the four principles. Scriptures of no private interpretation. Let scripture interpret scripture. Consider the law of first mention and always require more than one witness. Let's go through these quickly here today. First of all, the first principle, the scripture is of no private interpretation. This comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed. Now, 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 pay attention, pay attention to what's being said. We have a more sure word, a more definite, an absolute word of prophecy. So you'll do well to take heed to it. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Uh-huh. Knowing this, knowing word, this first. No prophecy. No prophecy of the scripture, of the scripture is of any, is private, of any interpretation. private interpretation. Why? For the prophecy because came the prophecy old, came the time, not by the will of in old time by the will of man, but holy men, but of, God holy men of God spake, spake as, they, spake were moved as the they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so, listen, in my opinion, this principle may well be the most important of the four. And that's why I've chosen to put it first in the principles that I'm presenting to you right now. And I'll explain why I think it's most important in just a minute. But, but I think before we do that, I do need to address something because this particular passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, um, went through a, a, a long period of time where supposed scholars were, were resting, were twisting the meaning of this verse. When Peter said it's of no private interpretation, then there were those theologians and scholars and quite honestly, church leaders, preachers, priests who were getting up and telling their people that what Peter meant by this was you're not smart enough to interpret the Bible. So you have no right to come up with an interpretation. You leave that to those that are trained. You don't know the original languages. You don't know the manners and customs of ancient times. You don't have the wisdom or the knowledge to understand the Bible, let alone explain it. So you just leave it alone. And I'm telling you, 
This is when we came into the period in history that's called the Dark Ages. And it became dark because those in control of the majority of what was considered Christian churches had ripped the Bible out of the hands of the people. They took it out of the pew and chained it to the pulpit. Now, you know what happened as a result of that? They were able to create all kinds of doctrines that had no basis in Bible. Nobody knew the difference. I'm going to tell you, when you go to a church where they don't want you reading the Bible, that ought to be a huge red flag. You ought to get out of there as fast as you can get. Because there's a reason why they don't want you reading that Bible. Hallelujah. I'm, I'm telling you, look, that's where doctrines like purgatory, you know, people don't necessarily go to heaven or hell. There's a holding place. And if you pay us enough money, we can pray them out of that holding place. That's nowhere in the Bible. The worship of Mary. There, I could go through a long list of doctrines that were devised during the dark ages. That anybody that knows anything about the scripture, in fact, that's how the Reformation started. You know that. Martin Luther was studying to be a priest. And so for the first time, he gets his hands on a Bible. And when he starts reading the Bible, he says, wait a minute. Where are you guys coming up with all this stuff? And that's when he took his 95 theses, his 95 points. He said, here's almost 100 places where you're in direct violation of the scripture. That's how it all started. Um, and, And they used this verse To back it up. Now, I'm telling you, that's a twisted meaning of the verse. That's not at all what Peter was saying when he said the scriptures of no private interpretation. Let me read to you from the Amplified Bible. I'm going to read this same passage to you from the Amplified. It says this, yet first you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of any personal or private or special interpretation. For no prophecy ever originated because some man willed it to do so. It never came by human impulse, but men spoke from God who were born along, moved, and impelled by the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? Peter said, there is no verse that is subject to your own little ideas. He's not saying you can't interpret it. But he's saying you can't put your flavor on it. Nobody has the right to do that. The the New American Standard Bible says this. Now listen. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made an act of human will. but But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter was not trying to say, you've got no right to try to interpret the scripture. What he was saying was, don't put your own interpretation on it. The scripture is not subjective. Please get this. It's not subjective. I've had people tell me, well, preacher, that's the way you interpret it, but I interpret it a different way. No, no, no. Listen to me. We might both be wrong, but we can't both be right. 
If we're interpreting this passage differently, somebody's wrong. And listen, God is not obligated to line up with our interpretation. Rather, we are obligated to line up to God's interpretation. So we better have some biblical ways to find out what God means in what he says in the scripture. Hallelujah. Look, I, I, I said this before, I say it again. Too many people use the Bible like a drunkard uses a lamppost. You know, you've, you've seen those drunkards hanging out of the lamppost. They're not using that post to try to give them light. They're using it to try to maintain support. And there's a lot of people that use the Bible in the same way. They're not letting the Bible illuminate their lives. They're just trying to support their own opinions. So they'll get some verse that they think would back up what they believe, and they throw that at you. They're just trying to support themselves. And I've actually had people give me verses to back up their idea that when we started looking at that verse, lo and behold, it said the exact opposite of what they thought it said. And I've had them admit that. But it, it was just that support. Ignore the light that's up there. Just let me support what I already believe. God doesn't want us doing that. I'm telling you, we've got to obey the command of the Apostle Paul. And I've got to hurry, but we've got to obey the command of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, he said this. God forbid. God forbid. Yea, let God, let be, true. God be true, but, but every, man a liar. every man a liar. I'm telling you, Paul said, I don't care if 100% of the world believes something. If it's different than what God said. God's true. Everybody else is wrong. God's kingdom is not a democracy. Majority does not rule. God rules. Let God be true. Let God be true. Listen, the Bible expresses God's thoughts, God's will, God's words, not man's. And we've got to respect this book enough to study it until we are able to fully grasp exactly what God intended for it to tell us. His word doesn't change. That's the beauty. His word doesn't change. Psalm 119 verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word. Forever, O Lord, thy word, is, thy settled word is settled in heaven. People say, well, I know the Bible says that. But look, this is 2018. Uh-huh. But do you understand? The Bible says forever. That goes a little ways past 2018. Forever his word is settled. And whatever it says in that book, I don't care what the year on the calendar says. That book still remains true. It does not become outdated. Now we might, somebody might consider it old fashioned, but it's not outdated. Hallelujah. It's forever settled. The meaning of this book will never change. 
And, and listen, the reason why I said a while ago that I think this is the most important principle of interpretation is because it establishes the fact that there's only one proper interpretation. If the Bible is fluid and we can just put anything we want in there, let me say it this way. If the Bible can mean anything, then the Bible means nothing. If it can mean anything we want it to mean, then really there is no meaning there. But there is a meaning. And it's our job to find God's meaning in a verse of Scripture. Amen. And the other principles are going to help us know how to do that. Because people say, well, how do you know that that's God's interpretation? Well, we're going to give you some more principles to help you figure that out. All right? But we have to start with this one, that you can't just come up with your own idea. You've got to pursue God's interpretation if you want to get it right. All right? So principle number two, principle number two, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, for, for centuries now, many Christian denominations have held to a belief they use the Latin term sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. I know we don't do a lot of Latin around here, so um, you may have never heard that, but, but it, it really means by scripture alone or only scripture. It is a very important principle. Um, the, the scripture's meaning throughout the centuries, has often been mediated through all kinds of secondary authorities. All right, now, now stay with me. Such as the ordinary teaching offices of the church, preachers, and priests, and rabbis, and whatever, have taken the scripture and applied meaning to it. But, but this concept of sola scriptura is this. Nobody has got the authority to override what the scripture says. The scripture is the only source of absolute truth. Now, I've got commentaries in my, in my study. I've got them on my computer. I've got them on my cell phone. And you've already heard me refer to some. I do use some. But I'm going to tell you, in no case do I consider a commentary the final authority on any verse of scripture. In fact, I'm going to tell you how I normally use commentaries. I usually use them for one of two reasons, either to look up word meanings or to find out some history about what's going on. When it comes to trying to interpret the verse, I've seen some wild interpretations. I don't trust them to interpret the scripture. I have a different source that I use when I'm trying to interpret scripture. You know what that source is? The scripture. It's the Bible. Let the Bible, I am here to tell you that any verse of scripture that you don't understand, if you'll do what Jesus said and search the scriptures, somewhere in this book is another verse that explains the one you don't understand. In fact, most of the time, it'll use some of the exact same wording. And the reason we don't come to the right conclusions because we don't take the time to look up those other verses. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 160. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Psalm 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. I love this. 
Thy word is true from the beginning. There's never been a time when God's word wasn't true. Every one of his righteous judgments endure forever. This is what I love about this verse. The, The psalmist said, in the beginning, it was true. In the end, it'll still be true. Jesus put it very succinctly, John 17 and 17, when he said this. Sanctify them, sanctify through, thy them truth, through thy truth. Thy, word, thy word is truth. Listen, according to the Lord himself, the Bible doesn't just contain truth. The Bible is truth. And there is a difference. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture. Wait a minute. How much of the scripture? How much? All. How much? All. All scripture is given by is inspiration, given by of, inspiration God. of God and is profitable, and is profitable for, doctrine, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, correction for instruction, and righteousness. righteousness. All scripture, all scripture, all scripture, all scripture. Listen, the Bible isn't just a good source of information. It is also the best source of interpretation. He said all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that phrase, as most of you know, inspiration of God literally means God breathed. God breathed every verse in our Bible. It came from his mouth. And so if every verse is breathed by God, then I'm telling you, we can trust this book to interpret itself. We just got to take the time to search it out oh Lord how I wish I had some more time but listen Jesus used this Jesus used this principle because the devil came at him quoting scripture the devil does know scripture not everything that quotes scripture is of God the devil came at Jesus quoting scripture Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. And saith unto him. The devil said to Jesus. If thou be the son of God. If you're really the son of God. Cast thyself down. Then cast yourself down. For it is written. Because, now listen, he's quoting scripture. It is written. He shall give his angels angels charge charge concerning concerning thee. And in their hands hands, they'll bear thee up. up, Lest at any time time dash thy foot against the stone. Now the devil took Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And rested those scriptures. He twisted the scriptures. He's telling Jesus. Because Psalm 91 verse 11 and 12 says exactly what the devil said. He didn't didn't misconstrue anything. As far as the wording. But he did misconstrue the meaning. When he started by saying cast yourself down. Because the Bible says. That he's given his angels charge over you. And they're going to bear you up. If you so much as dash your foot against the stone. You trip over a rock. And the angels are going to be there to catch you. So just throw yourself down. The devil is twisting scripture. So how did Jesus deal with that? He let scripture interpret scripture. Matthew 4 and 7. The very next verse. Here's what he says. Jesus said, unto Jesus him, said unto him, it is written again. It is written again. Or in other words, it's also written. 
Thou shalt not tempt, Thou the, Lord shalt thy not God. tempt the Lord thy God. Listen to me, devil. You've got to know the whole scripture. You can't take one verse out of context. Every verse has got to be applied in conjunction with other verses. And there is another verse that says don't tempt God. And if I throw myself off and demand that God catches me, that's tempting God. Psalm 91 was talking about an accident, not an act of self-will. And how did Jesus establish that? He did it by letting scripture interpret scripture. Well, praise God. Amen. Uh, the same thing is true. And I don't, I don't, I really, I wish I had time. I don't. But the same thing is true. Jesus was confronted uh, by a question about divorce. And, and you can read about it in Matthew 19. Uh, they come to him and and uh, I guess I do need to at least read it because I've got to refer back to it in just a minute. So, so very quickly, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, it is, is it lawful is it for lawful? a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not Have read? You not read? So, so first of all, they ask a question. And Jesus answers them with Scripture. Right? Have you not read? He's answering with scripture, all right? That he which made them at the beginning. At the beginning, made them male and female. I said the other day, I say again, there was no other. It wasn't male, female, other. It's male, female. End of discussion. Said for this cause, he said, for this cause, shall a man, shall leave, a man father leave father and mother, and, mother, and shall cleave to, to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Uh-huh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. All right, so now, how did these Pharisees then respond? They responded with Scripture. This is, you may not realize, this is a Bible debate going on here. Verse 7, they say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? When Moses wrote this, you can read it in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. We won't take the time to read it. But Moses clearly in his writing gave this, this opportunity. And so they listen to what Jesus said. Jesus was quoting scripture. They throw a scripture at him. Now Jesus has to answer this. How are we going to determine which is right? How are we going to do it? With more scripture. All right, let's read what he says. Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning. But from the beginning. It was not so. He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and says, this was the intention of God and it's clear. I'm just telling you, Jesus made it a practice to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We ought to make it a practice. I could spend time this morning taking you through examples where the apostles did the exact same thing. I don't have time for that today. But, but just know, this is the safe route. When you're trying to interpret Scripture, find another Scripture. All right? 
Principle number three, uh, actually closely related because of the story that we just used. Principle number three, consider the law of first mention. Now, let me explain this to you. Uh, The very first time that any doctrine or topic or subject is mentioned in the Bible, the scripture generally gives that topic its most complete and accurate meaning. It will give you more details in that first mention than it does anywhere else. Because it is the first mention. It needs to be explained. doesn't have to be re-explained every time. Are you with me? If you explain it the first time and you've got that written down, you don't have to come along and give all the explanation again every time it appears. But just because all of the explanation does not go along with the next reference doesn't mean the explanation changed. Okay? Um, You know, in a legal document, usually it'll say, you know, be it, Known that, whatever, Jared K. Hilton enters into this agreement, and 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 it, but it'll say Jared K. Hilton, and it will say afterwards known as the defendant or whatever. All right, and so then throughout that document, it doesn't say Jared K. Hilton anymore; it just says the defendant. Now I don't care if that document goes on for thirty pages. Anytime the word defendant appears, you understand because of the first mention, it's explained. So you don't get 20 pages in and say, no, no, he's talking about Jerome Johnson. No, it's clear by the first mention who's being talked about here. All right, and and that's what... The example that I use is Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about the creation. It's where it's taking place. Here we find on the first day, God separated darkness from light. Second day, uh, he divided the waters above from the waters below. The third day, he separated the land from the sea. On the fourth day, he created the sun, the moon, the stars. Fifth day, he created sea life and birds. Sixth day, he created land animals and man. And the seventh day, he rested. Now, all that's clearly spelled out in Genesis chapter 1. Every detail about creation is told to us in Genesis 1. The first mention gives us all the details. All right? But later on, we get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, and it says this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And now, now, I don't know if you notice, but he doesn't say God separated light from darkness on the first day, waters from waters on the second day, He just says God did it in six days. So did it change from Genesis to Exodus? The fact that he doesn't list those details in Exodus, does that mean that we don't have to believe what was said? Well, he didn't say it here. No. Once it's stated, it's truth. And it's forever settled. And it doesn't change whether or not those details are listed later. All right, And then, in fact, we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds are framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen uh, were not made of things which do appear. Oh, so, so, so Genesis, all the details. Exodus, well, six days. Rest on the seventh. Not nearly as many details. We get to Hebrews. Worlds were framed by the word of God. Doesn't he mention how many days it took? So did it change? 
Is this different now because he doesn't say here? Well, he didn't say here. It was six days of creation and a day of rest. So evidently that's not the case. No. It doesn't change. It's established in the first mention, and then you carry it on to every mention thereafter, whether or not the details are present. Okay? Do you remember how Jesus addressed the subject of divorce we just talked about? Remember what he did? In the beginning, it was not so. Have you not read how that God created them in the beginning? What was Jesus doing? He was going back to the law first. You want to understand this whole subject of divorce? Go back to the law first mention. Right? That's what he's doing. He's going back and showing them exactly what was said in the first mention so you can understand better the mentions after that. Because they're not going to contradict each other. All right? The lack of details in a later passage does not negate what the first mention says. Rather, it is simply understood. You'll base your understanding on these later verses, uh, of these later verses, on the details given in the first mention. This, this not only serves as a key to understanding whatever the topic is, but it, it provides a foundation for a fuller development in later parts of the Bible. That's the way it works. So if we really want to understand the meaning of a verse, always try to find the first time the subject is addressed. And you're going to learn a whole lot just by doing that. All right? Principle number four. I've got just a few minutes left. Principle number four. Um, Always require more than one witness. Now, church, this is an absolute necessity. Throughout the Bible, God always made it clear that simply having one person claim to be a witness of some accusation brought against another was not sufficient. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. So, so... Right here, first time God says we're going to deal with, with, with uh, the punishment of murderers, God said, I want to make it very clear. You don't listen to the accusation of just one person and build your case on that. I'm thankful. I mean, to me, this is just obvious. We all know what can happen if one person is all it takes to convict somebody. And unfortunately, we're reaching a time in society when that's becoming more and more the case, depending on what the accusation is. One person accuses somebody of something, then they're just guilty. But God said, no, we need more than one witness. There's a reason for that, folks. It's it's to protect the innocent. You know, if I don't like Andrew, I can just walk down to the police station and say, hey, you know, he's, he, he murdered my sister. I didn't know you had a sister. Well, I don't anymore because he murdered her. So the police go put him in the electric chair because I said it. And really, I just didn't like him. God said, no, we're going to have some protections in place. 
We're not going to condemn somebody based on just one testimony. You always make sure you've got at least two. And in fact, I want you to notice something as we go through this. Now that's Numbers 35 and 30. Let's look at this. Deuteronomy 17 and 6. Out of the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Deuteronomy 19:15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Matthew 18, 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, one or two more, that, at, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. John 18, 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, now why did I do that? Why did I give you? I'm going to tell you why. Because even the principle itself is established by its own principle. To me, I thought that was beautiful. You know, the principle is you got to have at least two witnesses. So what does the Bible do? Gives us six witnesses that you got to have more than one witness. Hallelujah. I'm I'm telling you that it, it is important that we adopt the practice of requiring every important scriptural truth, every important doctrine that we hold must be established by at least two separate scriptures. Otherwise, we cannot consider it to be binding. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the verse is wrong. You got one verse here. You can't back it up with another verse. Doesn't mean that verse is wrong. What it means is the way you're interpreting that verse is wrong. The verse is always true. But if you don't have at least one more witness, then you're interpreting it. Because if you've got the right interpretation, God saw to it that there's always at least two. And obviously, the more witnesses there are, the more firm we can establish something as being truth. Right? Listen, listen. What I'm trying to tell you is God built a system of self-protection into the Scripture That's important for every one of us to follow. This will keep us on the right track as we try to interpret scripture. This will keep us going the right direction. You can't just take a single verse or a part of a verse and say, that's what the Bible means. But you've got to provide a collaborating, cooperating, corresponding testimony of at least a second witness. You see, look, you need to understand the Bible is written in such a way that part of any truth may be in one place and another part in a different place altogether. Hang with me. Isaiah 28, 10. For precept must be precept upon precept. must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. precept. Upon precept. Line, upon line, line upon line. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there. And there. That is the Bible, my friends. 
This is where people get into trouble. They reach into some scripture, grab one little part, and that's all they know about it, and that's all they care to hear about it. But it is line upon line. It's precept upon precept. It's here a little and there a little. And that's the way you build biblical truth. If you want to get the whole truth, you've got to put all the parts together. Now, some of you may have heard this story before, but I actually found it written in poem form and thought it was applicable. And if you'd like to come and start getting ready uh, for me to close, I'm actually going to make it on time. Hallelujah. Maybe. Maybe. I'm trying. Um, saw it in, in, in uh, poem form. And so let me, you know I don't like to read too many people, when you start reading to them, they think it's bedtime. But I, I couldn't memorize all this, so I'm going to have to read it to you. But I think it very aptly describes what I want to say. It was six men of Indostand, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth, no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. Well, I feel like I just read that to some blind folks based on the looks on your faces. Did you get the point? That every one of those men took one little part and felt like this is truth. And unless they got all of it together, they really didn't describe the elephant. And that's the way a lot of people handle the scriptures. They grab one little part and say, this is what it is. One little part, this is what it is. 
really the only way we're going to have the truth. Listen, don't you think that's the reason why Jesus said that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into what? Into what? Not just truth, but specifically all truth. He's not just going to let you feel the ear or just the trunk or just the tusk. But the spirit comes to show you the entire beast to give you the full picture of what it really is that's the way our study of scripture really needs to be we need to always remember that the scripture is of no private interpretation we must always let scripture interpret scripture we need to consider the law of first mention and we must consistently require more than one witness. And if we do, if we do, we can fulfill 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what I want to do. How about you? That's what I want to do. I want to rightly divide the word of truth. Let's stand this morning. I don't want to arrive at my own conclusions when it comes to the Bible. There's far too much at stake. I want to handle the word skillfully with precision. So I can find out what God wants me to know from this blessed book. Truly, this book is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I want to know this book. Let's gather around this morning. Let's spend a few moments in prayer as we bring this service to a close today.